So this is an unusual uh, episode of the Arab Tyrant Manual. Uh, it's unusual in a sense that we are interviewing each other about our book. Uh, I believe you have your copy of the book next to you and I have mine here. Yep. Um, in the previous episode, we had a repost uh, from an interview that I did with Sarah Kenzior and Andrea Shalupa uh, from the uh, Gaslit Nation podcast. Uh, this uh, interview, the earlier interview, was recorded about a year ago, um, maybe a li little less than a year ago, uh, before the book came out in the United States. Um, but then it was an expansive interview about the book, about the context of the book, and we spoke also about the United States. Uh, it was one of my my favorite interviews, to be honest. Uh, in this uh, kind of follow-up episode about the book, The Middle East Crisis Factory, I think we're going to do something that is not done very often, in which two, the two co-authors of the book kind of interview each other about the book. Uh, you know, it, it was an interesting process, it was a frustrating process, and, you know, we are very, we've said many times to our audiences and even to ourselves that we don't want this to be the last book we write. Uh, but it was an unusual first book to write. And so I think what we're going to do here is that what we did ahead of time is prepare uh, a list of questions. And, you know, I, I prepared mine, I sent it to Ahmed. Ahmed worked on it a little bit, and now uh, we're going to be to be basically going question, like, I'm going to ask you a question, and then you're going to ask me a question. And these aren't exactly uh, softball questions. I think we've both been uh, specifically looking for the difficult ones and the revealing ones as well. Yeah, to be honest, uh, most of the time when I speak about my book, it's normally a short discussion. And it's a discussion that normally, because it, the book is about the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, it's called the Middle East Crisis Factory because it is about how dictatorships basically create crises. And how, you know, it, it's really, it's it's not just a study of the present moment, but it's also a study of the history of legitimacy in the modern in the modern region. But because the region is always producing crises, uh, there's always some crisis out there that someone, whoever will interview you, will want to focus on. So someone might interview you and say, okay, you wrote this book, but let's specifically talk about Yemen, or let's specifically talk about Saudi Arabia, etc. Um, the you know this is different here because we can we can actually go on tangents. We can actually, you know, dive deep into into maybe topics that regular, like kind of the regular interview would not go into. So I'm kind of excited about this. So why don't we kick off with uh, motivations? Why did you, why did you write the book, Yed? So this is this is embarrassing. Uh, it's embarrassing because, uh, as I said in the beginning of the book, in the in the very beginning of the book, I write this uh, this uh, kind of introduction. Uh, which, which is written by me and not by you, Ahmed, and in which I, I speak about how the book came to be. And the interesting thing is, the first, the first thing I say is that this was not the book I was supposed to write. Uh, back when we started working together, when, when, we, when we started, when we, when we knew each other in 2011, I was working on a different book, on a very different book. 
and I, I mentioned this to mention the whole story in 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 the book so you know uh if, if you've read the book then you then then you know if not you know buy the book and uh, and, and get to know the story but essentially there's another there's another angle here which is that when uh, the, 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 the way that it came about is that in 2015, I did an interview with, uh, I think it was Vox. Um, and the interviewer there was asking me a few, you know, a few of my ideas about the region, etc. This was like, this was in the, ISIS was still a thing at the time. Like the caliphate was still a thing at the time. You know, ISIS was not yet, of course, ISIS is still around. But, you know, at that time, it, it still, it was really at the height of the scare. And uh, based upon that interview, I was contacted by an Italian publisher, um, and uh, La Terza, and they asked me to write a book. Um, and uh, they said we want you to write a book that kind of you know encapsulates some of the ideas that you that you cover in this interview. But the the thing is, the interview was very expensive. I did not have the idea back then to write a book. But then you know I'm an author. And uh, this was, you know, keep in mind that my situation, my personal situation at the time is that I didn't even have a home yet. Uh, I was still a refugee. I was not settled yet. I had been granted asylum by, by, by Norway, but I didn't have a place to like a like a permanent place to stay. My family was in, in a bit of turmoil. And so um, I'm, uh, I don't know if I should be ashamed to say this, but they lured me with money. I was, I was, I was a refugee who, 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 you know, who didn't have a job and he didn't have a place to stay. And, uh, you know, uh, a publisher comes along to say, we're, we're going to give you this, this advance to write this book. And, uh, On that you know, note, I think it's just, that it's kind of amusing to remember this because of like now thinking back how small the advance was, like, it's, it's not a particularly exciting sum, but we were that broke. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the thing is. I think that if it was not for the advance, I probably would not have chosen to write the book then. I probably would have written it eventually, but not then. Hmm. Um, but then let me, I'm like, basically, I, I kind of uh, avoided the question here because the question really was, once you decided to write the book, what was the motivation? So I, I kind of, uh, I kind of like, uh, you know, I went around the question here, but, you know, the motivation for writing the book really was... To uh, to me, it was about the history of legitimacy in the region. There was a sort of uh, a number of ideas that I wanted to put forward, and I didn't want to to write a book which is uh, completely political, because I thought that a political history will always privilege the stories of those in power. It will be about who's in power, what they did, etc. It will not be speaking about the people and how they lived. On the other hand, if we make it just a people's history. And we ignore, you know, a cultural history, for example, or social history. A lot of the time we would be ignoring the relationship between these people and uh, those in power. And the politics, after all, especially if you live in a dictatorship, it, it really decides a lot of what happens in your life. So for me, I really wanted to write the history about the history of legitimacy, because I thought legitimacy is that one thing that ties the two. It ties those in power with the, with the, with the people who, who, uh, who are governed. Um, so, and I wanted to really explain that the Arab Spring was not just a moment in time, uh, that it's a phase of our history, uh, and that, uh, this is my vision for, you know, for what's going to, you know, what, what the next 20 years will look like. So that's my answer. Um, and let me, let me, let me ask you, uh, the next question. 
why did you set out to write the book? I mean, what was your motivation? And did your motivation change as, you know, during the process of writing it? So I don't have a, an interesting story about how I was chased from country to country during the course of uh, preparing to write the book. Um, but I do have an intellectual answer to where it come from, where it came from. Um, as you know, I was uh, just coming out of my teens when the uprisings of the region happened or began. And I was watching with frustration and, you know, kind of amazed at the incompetence with which Western powers treated um, the entire question of policy and how to respond. Um, and you know how sometimes with the eyes of a beginner, uh, you come to a question with more innocence and you can kind of forego the answers which are taken as foregone conclusions and actually look at the real root of the question instead of dealing with legacy issues and things like that. Now, That's explain, explain that what point. I thought. Explain that point uh, a little bit further. So, so sometimes when you've been in a field for a long time, you have all kinds of additional considerations um, weighing on you at the same time as the work that you're actually doing. You're thinking of how this fits with the legacy of how you've dealt with the issue before. You're thinking about continuity. You're thinking about institutions and how they react. You're thinking about relationships. Um, you have a lot of uh, received wisdom that you're trying to work within. Um, and you've got you've gotten used to thinking about the issue a certain way, um, and maybe the outside the the correct answer is actually outside of the way you've always thought about it. Mm. Um, and I thought maybe this was an opportunity to really look at the question from first principles. Um, and I guess that's kind of what we did because we started with the historical narrative, um, and we went from that to society and how society works and why society works that way. And from that, we tried to figure out solutions to the questions of uh, authoritarianism, foreign intervention, and extremism in the region. We didn't start with, here's, you know, here's what everybody does to deal with uh, terrorist groups, or here's how we've always dealt with um, uh, dictatorships in the past. Here's the Bush doctrine, or here's the Reagan doctrine, or whatever. We kind of approached it as a blank slate. And in a way that gave us possibly more freedom than people who work in the field professionally. Mm. Well, that's very interesting. Um, I was like, as you're you're speaking, I was actually thinking about about how uh, my own motivation changed because, I mean, not that I have anything interesting to say, just that uh, the book was not written in you know in a single year. Because the first draft of it, I mean, I signed the contract, it was, I think, 2016. Um, and then, you know, it, it was written in, in, in bits and pieces over the next two years. Uh, and then, you know, of course, we're, I think we're going to go over the story because eventually it, uh, it, it was published in Italian the first time. And then it was translated and, uh, and uh, you know, it expanded into English, which made it a different book. Um, and because of the very large... Uh, events and this like very traumatic transition going on in the Middle East. Um, different years have had different topics, different emphases. Um, and so there are layers of the book. And I think, um, I think, you know, I think you wanted to ask me about this, about um, the, the first book. Yeah, which was originally called The Vicious Triangle. Yeah. Um, and anyone who's read the book now knows that that's uh, more like the first half of the book. Yeah, in the original manuscript, the, that was uh, 
So uh, right now it is one chapter of the book uh, of the Middle East Crisis Factory. Uh, initially, it was actually an entire part of the book. Uh, in you know, in the previous, uh, the 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 initial, the vicious triangle. The vicious triangle was the title of the book, and it was uh, it was uh, one of the main themes of the book. And the idea here was to 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 talk about this uh, this kind of uh, uh, this relationship, this interdependence between terrorism, dictatorship, and foreign intervention. Um, I was fascinated with that for a very long time. I tweeted a lot about it for a very long time. Uh, I discussed discussed a lot discussed it with a lot of people, and I thought it was an interesting idea to examine the this this kind of interdependence and how uh, three uh, oppressive forces can kind of lean into each other because they they appear to be fighting each other, but they actually empower each other. Um, and I thought that was very fascinating. Um, and you know the first the first version of the book really focused on that a lot. Uh, keep in mind that as as I mentioned uh, earlier, the book was initially uh, you know commissioned when uh, you know the the biggest story was really terrorism and ISIS, and so it had a certain uh, you know uh, it has it, it had a certain uh, focus on terrorism how terrorism fits into the cycle. And how dictatorship and foreign intervention kind of feed feed into that, um, but I guess uh, I guess let me ask you the next question. When when you were writing your chapters of the book, um, were you trying to influence policy? Um, I think I was less towards the end of the book. And uh, I think we both converged on that. And I think I was a lot more at the beginning. I was very optimistic about it. And now looking back, that feels like a very distant goal. Um, you know, you can talk about Western for foreign policy as being a massive juggernaut. Um, and because of all that weight, it's so slow to turn around. There's so many well-meaning people and people of integrity and people who are involved for the right reasons involved in it. And many of them have listened to us and, and spoken to us and consulted us in the past but um, they're also fighting against so many entrenched interests, um, not to mention an electoral system which kind of disincentivizes long-term thinking about these problems anyway. Um, there's nobody really whose job it is at a, at a high enough level to think about the 10 years and the 20 years. Um, the people who call the shots are thinking about the four years and the eight years. Um, and as um, as the crises rolled while we were writing this book, you know, it kind of spanned multiple eras. It spanned the uh, the 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 last years of the initial revolutionary movements. It spanned the backlash against them from the authoritarians, and then the rise of ISIS, and then the uh, global intervention and the fall of ISIS. And I think that seeped in to the attitude writing it, and we began to care less and less about policy or maybe even believe less and less that we could affect policy hmm. how about you well for me uh, initially i did have um i did have a focus on policy initially i thought that this could be i mean i remember the first the, you know some of the first manuscript that i wrote and i was writing about how this was in 2016 trump was basically sworn in and I could also see that, you know, for us, um, of course, Trump was a disaster, uh, 
but at the same time, we also knew that Hillary was not exactly the was exactly was not exactly a friend. It seemed that in the foreign policy department, these democracies, the whole, all the rage in 2016 was about defending democracy, authoritarian backlash, the rise of populism, etc. Um, but then from from our vantage point, yeah, we cared about democracy, but at the same time, we're like, you know, your, your foreign policy has never been pro-democracy. Um, and so I, I was thinking, you know, the world does not know how to deal with dictatorships. The world does not really know how to stand up for democracy. And especially the Western world, uh, especially Western progressives, they might be progressives on many issues, but when it comes to foreign policy, they don't really have a, new, a lot of new ideas. So I thought that maybe we can present kind of a policy prescription saying that, you know, we are kind of, we're from the region, we care deeply about the region, uh, we care about democracy, uh, uh, we care about human rights, and this is, this is a prescription for what we think can work. So, and you can understand, I mean, this is, of course, uh, makes complete sense. But by the end of it, I started to see that uh, I was maybe, maybe I got disillusioned. I got disillusioned with, with uh, whether any book or really any effort can actually turn this around. Because I thought that this uh, dissociation... Uh, you know, between foreign policy, uh, sorry, between uh, values and foreign policy is really intergenerational. I thought that, you know, there's no point for us to actually try try to prescribe, like to, to basically suggest policy. I thought that, uh, you know, it's, it's simply not worth it because a lot of these countries, whether it is in Europe or in the United States, they are uh, becoming inward focused. They are focused on internal, you know, internal, uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of contradictions. Um, and whether we like it or not, whether we accept it or not, this is not going to be a priority for them for a while. And so my focus shifted. And honestly, it's also there is a bit of bit of also disillusionment with uh, with where the source of the problem is. I don't think I mean where I am now. I don't think the source of the problem is really is policy. I think the source of the problem is that for many people in the West. They simply, and I say this with a, little, with a little bit of bitterness, really. I don't think they see us. They see the region as worth investment. Or let me let me say it bluntly. I don't think they see us as full human beings. I think they will always. Our fate is always going to be of not of very high importance. Uh, and so there is this idea that this, you know, this region is uniquely, uh, you know a bed for crises. It's uniquely bad and it's uniquely not worth of long term. I mean, because if we're, if we're going to go there and say, listen, uh, this is going to take 20 years. Yeah, for me and you, it means, yeah, this is going to take 20 years of our lives and we have to work work towards it, towards something which is worth it. And it is worth the investment of how, you know, of, of, you know, of a big chunk of our lives, if not the rest of our lives. But for a Western policymaker, like, yeah, okay, 20 years, that means that we might as well get chummy with the dictator because they're going to be around for 20 years. This is how their thinking is going to be. So I guess it was, yeah, it was disillusionment. Um, or maybe realism. I don't know. But let me ask you the next question. Um, why was this difficult to write for you? Hmm. So the parts that I spent the most time on, I think, were 
Um, chapter two is the vicious triangle. And that has a bunch of case studies in it. Each angle of the triangle, basically terrorism and, and tyranny, terrorism and foreign intervention, foreign intervention and, ty and tyranny. Um, we have one case study in each direction of how one angle of the triangle supported the other. Yeah, so let me ask um, you, let, let me interject and ask you to kind of explain a little bit more for someone who hasn't read the book and doesn't know about the vicious triangle, what it is. Yeah, so basically it's the idea that these three forces, authoritarianism, foreign intervention, and extremism, aren't um, separate independent things that can be fought independently. They're deeply symbiotic and they're intertwined with each other and you can't get rid of one without addressing the others. Um, and they're symbiotic to the extent that um, if you try and remove one using another, they will actually mutually reinforce each other. So that's just to say, yeah. So that is to say, for example, if you try to fight terrorism through foreign intervention, you're actually strengthening terrorism. Yeah, and the, the specific case study that we used for that one is um, Iraq post uh, the Gulf War and how um, basically the US and Europe's efforts to stamp out extremism just created a hotbed for, for extremism from which eventually emerged horrors that hadn't yet been seen before in the region, like, well, eventually ISIS, but even before them, Musa, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi and others like him. Yeah. So the, the difficult part of this was, um, as I was writing these, uh, these chapters, I was going into, you know, source material. I was looking at primary sources, but also secondary sources and analysis. Um, but I was also trying to mine the stories from within my own family and I uncovered a lot of stuff that I wasn't even aware of before that um, and it really connected me to the anger of previous generations and made me empathize in a way that I hadn't before. So um, one example I was thinking about earlier is um, Gamal Abdel Nasser, the Egyptian military strongman and the first really big military leader in the region arguably. Um, and I've always looked back at him as a complete catastrophe for the region and a failure. And I've, I've looked at him with, uh, you know, probably disgust is the best word, a uh, military dictator who decimated his own civil society and, and dragged the country through a couple of disastrous failed military conflicts before bequeathing the country to another military ruler when he was assassinated. Um, and when I spoke to my family, I actually saw the rise of Gamal Abdel Nasser through their eyes. Um, you know, you have my grandfather growing up. Um, the occupation of Egypt by the British is still within living memory, right? And the occupation of Libya by Italy is within living memory. And most of the region, likewise, Syria, French occupation, uh, all, almost the entire region apart from Saudi Arabia, maybe. Um and all of a sudden, there's this handsome, charismatic military man getting rid of the government which used to kowtow to foreigners and uh, speaking strongly about native dignity and agency and talking, you know, talking big about how we're going to defend ourselves and now it's going to be different. Um, so initially, I was really surprised when I found out that members of my family had basically, like, canvassed for him, gone around, you know, in Libya, handing out leaflets, talking about the the Arab nationalist socialist cause, you know, driving around the neighborhood with megaphones, spreading the message. Like, I was really amazed to hear that. Um, and then when I saw it through their eyes, 
you know, you kind of get a very different um, view of the situation at the time. Today, we can say that um, people don't have the excuse because we know exactly what it, what happens when you bring in a military leader. But back then, this was a totally new experiment. We were getting rid of um, centuries of rule by outsiders and, you know, bring up a young, charismatic guy who believes in native agency. And you know, it was an era of incredible hope. And of course, after that, I also read about, or I heard about how seeing that decline um, felt as it happened, you know, watching it unfold live and how it affected people, how it affected communities and society. You mean the Nexa, the defeat of 1967? Um, the Nexa, the the downturn in Libya, watching the, the slide of Saddam, um, you know, Palestine through successive crises, watching what the rulers of Saudi Arabia eventually became. A lot of it was um, kind of sleepwalking into it. Mm. Um, but you basically woke up 30 years later and, and with horror and thought, what has this region become? We were so young and hopeful, and now it's a catastrophe. Um, so that was um, very difficult emotionally to connect with for me. Yeah, and we tried to capture that in the book itself when we talked about, uh, you know, this was this was part of the story of legitimacy itself and how legitimacy went from, you know, we're going to we're going to fight uh, imperialism to more mundane things like, you know, education and healthcare and, you know, uh, a better lifestyle. So that's something that came, I think, uh, another thing that changed through the course of the book is as I leaned less on the policy side. I started to lean more on the the story that I wanted to tell about our own existence, where we came from, and, and our aspirations. Yeah. And you, c- it, I think it's possibly something you can. Well, it's very hard to get it from academic or historical sources. Is how the event really made people feel on a visceral level. Yeah. And that kind of, uh, I, I I know that you you wanted to ask me why I included poetry in the early drafts. And um, um, and I think that answers it, really. I think there's going to be a short answer to... to I mean, I kind of preempted your question. You were supposed to... I knew that you, this was going to the next be the next question. I kind of jumped on it. Uh, but the reason why, I mean, in early drafts... Of course, we couldn't include all of the poetry because uh, some of the, 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 the translations were copyrighted and we couldn't really include it. But the reason why is because I think in the, you know, in it's probably a good thing that a lot of these events were documented in popular culture in a very, in a very extensive way. There, every time one of those big events happened in the region, there was poems written about it, there were songs written about it on both sides. Sometimes it is a matter of uh, bitterness, sometimes a matter of pride. Um, but then there is a lot, and you know, the, the other side of, of that disillusionment, like like you said, this this idea that we're sleepwalking into a lot of crises and disappointments, and 30 years later we, we find this, you know, this beautiful dream has become a nightmare. Um, the other side of it is that from pain comes a lot of, uh, comes a lot of, to be honest, really, really, really poignant, and I'd, I'd even, I'd even say beautiful, uh, poetry hmm. and I thought that including the poetry really will connect you with the sense with the visceral feelings um, of you know of people who are going through that 
So did you find anything particularly difficult to write about? Yeah, I mean, because uh, I remember I remember once writing to our edit to our editor to just um, you know to just explain to her just how difficult writing. I think I just wanted to speak to someone about the process. Um, and sometimes, you know, because you're writing the book in from a very, from a very, uh, from kind of a, a, it's a bird's eye view of the events, both, uh, both regionally, like geographically, but also chronologically. And sometimes I have to, I have to write sentences, single sentences about a whole event that happened that took, you know, that, that involved a lot of people dying, a lot of people I know, uh, people I know personally, people I've connected with. Um, so writing some of the chapters was definitely triggering. It was triggering because I had to put myself in my shoes as I was going through the events. Um, it made for more powerful writing, but it was very difficult. It was very, very difficult. Particularly given you were still at the height of your PTSD during a lot of this process, it probably didn't help. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually considered writing this at the, at, the, at the end of the book to say that I wrote this book while recovering from PTSD. Because it was something that I was very proud of, honestly. Uh, and you know, one of one of the earlier editor, the editor of the Vis Triangle, is like, you know, maybe that's not relevant. Uh, but now I'm wondering, maybe maybe I should have mentioned it. Just you know, just kind of as a point of pride. There's there's definitely blood, sweat, and tears that went into it. Yeah, and that's the thing. It was not. A, it was a very unusual process. Um, I'm going to ask you the next question. Uh, okay. And I'll I'll try not to jump on the next question. <laughs> So, so that so that you know so that you can ask it. Um, what do you like about the book, and what do you not like about the book? Um, so connected to the last answer, but I really like the fact that it's um, telling the story of a people, um, and that there are so many different countries, but we managed to weave them into an overarching narrative of the region, whilst at the same time not erasing the diversity and the difference within that region. Um, I don't think anyone would get the impression from reading it that all these countries are the same and each case study you get like you get the fact that there's a very particular dynamic going on here and its own particularities but at the same time there's an overarching story um, and what I didn't like um, aside from the process which was very difficult um, I think it was everything that I didn't like was related to process um, at times, I found it very difficult to keep up with you. Um, so we're kind of opposite ends of a generation, 15 years apart. Um, you had more experience than me. Um, and you had like we, we both had, I think, at different times, a clear idea of what we wanted. And it was sometimes a stretch to harmonize those things together. Um, but looking back, I'm, I'm very satisfied with how the result turned out. Mm. How about you? Well, I, I would say that I liked, uh, what I liked about the book is really the opportunity to, to sit with this material. Um, the opportunity to really do this, this kind of deep dive. Uh, I liked the idea also, I, I really appreciate the, the chance to write about the story of legitimacy. Um, I think that, that was, and I think I, I also liked the last chapter that I wrote. Um, you know, kind of looking at looking ahead, looking forward, uh, with That's a bit the, of the a, next twenty years. The next twenty years, and I think I, I think I also ended on on a positive note and a humanistic note, uh, a, a note of hope. Um, 
What I did not like, and I think uh, this this might surprise some people, but you know, in private conversations, I've mentioned to people that you know, um, I I was surprised that the book came out as good as as it did, uh, because in certain in certain ways, I feel like, um, I feel like I censored myself in certain in certain parts of the book, especially earlier drafts, which earlier drafts became the layer upon which the rest of the book was written. Um, so I think this is this is the main thing. It's it's that I thought that um, I thought that I could. I mean, if I write the book and uh, uh, you know anew, if I'm going to write the book now, I think it's going to be much. It's going to be more honest. It's going to. It might be more angry, but it's going to be more honest. Hmm. Tell me more about that. Um, I think it's a function of my my recovery from PTSD. Um, uh, I'm 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 gonna go off on, on a bit of a tangent here, but uh, I remember coming back home from from my first uh, my my first round of psychedelic therapy in the United States in 2018. Uh, this was after the Jamal Khashoggi murder, uh, and people generally after their their first therapies they have a feeling of calm and they have a feeling of uh, of centeredness and uh, you know they feel in control. Uh, but I remember a feeling of anger, uh, and the anger. You know, as I spoke to my facilitator and my therapist at the time, and they were surprised. They're like, you know, uh, they're like, this is interesting. But now I understand it because when when you have lived in a situation where you are constantly being targeted, or constantly you're basically facing constant repeated humiliation because of who you are. Um, Sometimes recovery, the way that recovery is going to look is that you're going to see at things which you normalize to yourself. You, th you thought they were normal, but suddenly you start to see them as not normal at all. And that's when you start to be angry. This anger is basically self-respect. Uh, you're gaining self-respect. And as you gain self-respect, you actually learn to be angry again. It's not, a, it's, it's not necessarily bad. Of course, I mean, anger can become bad if it's, if it's consuming and if it's egotistical. But in this case, it's actually a positive sign. Uh, so I think that I have one of the things that I'm, I, I hope that I've done, I think I'm still working on it, is really to reconcile myself with the sense of anger. Because anger is the right response. It's the right human response to injustice. Um, so I think, I think this is... I think we've said that before, that if you're not angry about the region, you don't actually understand what's happening. Or you don't care. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, uh, that's not an option we have. So, which part of the book's most important to you? Um... Um, I think it's. I, I would say the 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 history of legitimacy, which is the first part of the book, uh, was I, I find I found it important to me because I thought that I said uh, I really thought that I communicated what I had to say. Uh, I feel that the vicious triangle. So there's a bit of context to, to whoever whoever is listening to us about the vicious triangle because it used to be, as I mentioned, it used to be very big. It used to be three chapters or four chapters, was it? Um, and then it had to be summarized into one. By far, it is by far still the, lo the longest chapter of the book, but it used to be, I think, much. Uh, I think it was twenty thousand words or something like that. 
that summarizing was a painful process. Yes, uh, painful because you had to cut away a lot of the stuff that you already wrote. And now what we're stuff thinking, that I really liked and that was uh, I and thought it was, was and, and that's why we're thinking we're still this is still uh, still in the on the books and it's a project that we're we're likely going to be working on 2022 which is to take that material and turn it into kind of a series or kind of like a limited limited release podcast because that is I mean absolutely it is good material it is actually well edited it all just needs to be you know put out there we just had to cut it out for that reason but still even though we had to cut so much I think the, the vicious triangle those chapters came out good uh, they came out uh, I mean they really they really portray the the, the central message there um, I would say that I regret that I could not write more about Palestine uh, or I could not really mm. fit Palestine into the history of legitimacy because Palestine had a very different path in the last 70 years than the rest of the region because of the occupation because we're facing something very different than you know what people in Mauritania or people in Algeria or people in Yemen are facing uh, but then I've always I always thought that you know this is this book is is about the region and in the future we're going to there's going to be chances for us to write more about about you know this is I, I don't want to I don't want to uncover what we're already working on but we are working on a big project related to Palestine anyway um, I I did not really. I think I also like the last part, the last portion of the book. I mentioned that you know the last twenty years, uh, the part about the proposals, the part about the, the you know the uh, you know the ideas about you know what to do. I thought that I, I'm I'm not gonna say that I don't like these parts, but I'm just gonna say that I don't think that the main I don't think that the main problem with uh, Western foreign policy regarding the Middle East is a lack of imagination. I don't think it's a problem of lack of imagination. I think it's a lack of political will, which is why I wouldn't overemphasize. I mean, a lot of people are like, okay, these are some ideas. Uh, honestly, I would not emphasize the ideas so much because I don't think it's a matter of lack of ideas. I think it's simply a lack of, uh, you know, political will. Hmm. I'm going to ask you the next question. And if you... If you are, if you had to write the book today, um, I mean, if you have to, if you have to start writing now, uh, you know, someone asks you for a book proposal, how would it be different? Hmm. I don't know what I'd do in a new book proposal, but if I was writing this book again, I think what I'd do is include a lot more stories of the people who were crushed between the wheels of the grand geopolitical machines that tore through the region and whose stories were never told. Um, I think that's where the book comes alive. I think, like, for example, the story of Muhammad Sultan uh, in the chapter on Egypt. Um, you know, it's it's such an incredible story. It's it's almost like the guy's... I think he's my age and he's already he already seems to have lived three lifetimes. Um, mm. People like him, um, people like... Uh, my grandfather, um, you know, there's so many of them. People like Jamal Khashoggi. Um, I think I would have possibly tried to tell a lot more of it through the eyes of individual stories rather than as, uh, you know, 60,000 feet out, bird's eye view kind of things. How about you? I mean, uh, interesting that you'd say that because that would be, uh, you know, that, that would be a good idea for another book, I guess, but it'll be a very different book because it's basically highlighting stories. And yeah, we tried to, 
you know, you, you, you try to maintain this, uh, this humanity in the narrative, uh, but at the same time, you need to speak about very general things. I mean, for me, um, I guess, I guess I would, I would probably not have the ambition to talk about solutions or to talk about, uh, puzzles. Um, and I would simply expand the parts which, uh, which talk about his, you know, the history and like you mentioned, you know, those personal stories. Uh, and maybe I'll be very explicit about why there is this function, why I think that it's no, it's, it's not, uh, it's not going to be very productive for me to speak about proposals. So who do you want this book to be read by the book that we actually have? Um, I mean, I would imagine giving the book to read. I mean, sometimes, you know, sometimes you're, you're having, you're having an argument, you're having a debate with someone and you feel that, oh, this person doesn't understand where I'm coming from. Uh, and I would say he read this book and you'll understand. Um, we had many conversations with a publisher, with Hearst, uh, before, uh, you know, before actually starting the process. Um, and, uh, the idea that they wanted is that they wanted a book, which was, um, uh, not specialist, I mean, not so specialized that it's only something that's read by experts, but also, uh, you know, it, you know, it, it, it's, it should be, a, you know, a book that an expert will read and will get something out of, knowing that this is not an academic book, but then also a general audience can read, it's still accessible to a general audience and they'll still get something out of it. And it will not be, you know, it, it's not, it's not so dumbed down that, you know, experts will not be interested in it. And it's not so inaccessible that, you know, general public will say that, you know, this is not something for us. Um, so I guess my ambition is for this book to really be that way, to really be a book that can, that can, you know, anybody can, can read, get, you know, get to understand a little bit about region and get to understand a little bit about how we think about the region and get something out of it. So um, let me ask you this. Beyond the details of the content, what do you think? I mean, what do you think? What do you want the reader to walk away having understood? Hmm. So to me, the thing that really sticks out is the fact that the region did not have to be the way that it is. And there's nothing inherent about it saying that it has to be this way. Um, it's this way because of the choices that people have made and we can make different choices very easily. Um, that's, I guess, the key message of the book for me. Um, I was thinking about the your answer to who you want this book to be read by and wondering who I'd love to, to read it. And the first people that came to mind are actually my family in Libya. Um, I'd love to get a translated version someday um, because I almost feel like it would be like holding up a mirror in a way. Um, and I'd love to ask, like, do you see yourself in this? Do you see your hopes uh, or your hopes from back in the 70s or the 50s? Do you see them reflected? Do you do you still hold them? Do you disavow them? Um, and what would you do differently? And what can we do differently now? Because that idea that the region didn't have to be this way is something that's really important for Western observers. Um, you know, it, it wipes away a lot of the Orientalism, but I think it's also important for ourselves from the region because there's a level of um, even self-loathing that can come with being so, from such a broken and dysfunctional region um, that you think yeah. it's it's because of who you are. Like, it's your fault that your country is this this broken and this bad. 
Um, yeah, and I, can, I, can, I certainly sympathize with that because I grew around, I grew up around communities that that had the sense of biting humor, kind of like self-deprecating humor about. It's really coming from pain. It's coming, it's coming from disillusionment and pain from you know two generations, three generations of pain. Um, and you know, here to say that I, I actually, I'm actually asking myself, why didn't I think about this that this book can be for Arabic-speaking audiences? And I guess I felt. I mean, I grew up in the region. This is like this is maybe another distinction. It's not only that we have this age difference uh, between me and you, but also I grew up in the region, and you grew up in you 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 grew up in, of course, a very Arab family, but you grew up in the United Kingdom, uh, and so we're kind of we have different perspectives here as well. Um, I always felt, uh, and I don't know if I'm if I'm correct to think that, but I felt that a lot of my perspective uh, is something that a lot of Arabs will not, a lot of Arabs within the region uh, will not need to be told. I mean, it's 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 that kind of stuff. It's the kind of uh, thing that they already know. Maybe it's a wrong assumption. Maybe it is a very wrong assumption. Maybe we should be thinking, you know, this is a book that that maybe like maybe we maybe it's a book that should be translated. Of course, the whole idea of a translation of, to Arabic opens another discussion that, that I think is worth its own episode of the Arab Tyrant Manual, uh, because you know it will be banned. Uh, and but maybe if it's banned or censored, that actually is the best uh, you know the best uh, uh, advertisement. Um, and I'd actually say that even if people would instinctively agree, and this isn't something that they need to be told. Sometimes it's just um, healing to be able to see how you feel in writing, and especially in a highly censored region, to know that you're not the only one. Hmm. Um, I'm going to steal one of your questions here, uh, but if this okay. book is the start of a conversation, what would you want that conversation to be? Honestly, it'll be it'll depend upon who I'm having the conversation with. So if I'm having a conversation with a fellow Middle Easterner. Uh, it's going to be about self-discovery, about understanding how we got here, about understanding, like you said, that a lot of the conflicts within the region were not, uh, you know, were not uh, inevitable and they're not essential to the region. Uh, and you know, from there, it becomes a conversation about the future, about what we can do and about the fact that we can do something. It's not, it's not exactly... Sometimes you have these conversations where people just check out because... And again, when they check out, it's not because they don't care. It's because they care so much that they don't want to hurt themselves. Uh, if, however, the conversation is from some with someone who's from outside the region, especially from you know from Western country, and I keep highlighting Western country because Western countries, of course, have had a very deep and uh, you know and uh, and really terrible impact uh, on the region. Um, I think that conversation would be again about how kind of really trying to understand, trying to make them understand. Uh, the region from the eyes of a native uh, and how from the eyes of a native a lot of these events that they had a different perspective on had a very different interpretation very different meaning um, and I guess it's it's going to always revolve around around shared humanity about humanism about the fact that this you know this region this region is a region of human beings I think I mentioned this in the book some at some point that to start to talk about how to fix the region is to understand that, it's it's you don't fix a human being you don't fix a human organic thing you you heal it um and you know if we're going to speak about healing uh it starts really with integrating our our history um 
I'm going to ask you the same question. I mean, if this is a, if this was a conversation, then what um, what what where would you what where would you take this conversation? Um, I liked your answer about agency, and I don't think I can find a better one. Basically, what we can do, and whether I think that would be the same whether in the region or outside of it, because the answers would be different, but the the starting question is the same within the region. It's really about recapturing that hope um, and that that ability to look forward to the future and feel that you can play a part in building it. And outside of the region, it's also about um, not accepting things as a foregone conclusion and accepting that you can play a role, whether that's through involvement in the political process or just showing solidarity. Hmm. I mean... Uh... It's it's a weird it's it's it is I mean I I started the episode by saying there's going to be an unusual interview but I I, I thought there's going to be unusual for the reader sorry for the for the listener but it's also weird for us because it's almost like you know these are deep questions that are really making you reach deep inside to 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 understand your own motivations but I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna let's end with probably the the most uncomfortable question. What worries you as an author about this book? That's a difficult question. Do you want to go first? <laughs> um, well, th- this tells you that we actually, we really, we really did, we, did, we really did good work on picking the questions. Uh, but yeah, what, what worries me about it is, I mean, let me tell you what worries me from the point of view of an author. I keep worrying about falling into the crack between the expert crowd and the general audience. Because you want to be you want to be in that sweet spot where you're like, okay, an expert can appreciate the book, but it's also accessible for general audiences, as I mentioned. But then you don't want to fall into the crack where an expert will say this is too general for me, and the general the general audience will say this is too expert for me. Uh, I also worry about uh, people who would read the book and would simply focus on the implementation policy, what do we do? When it's really about, you know, giving you a paradigm, giving you a way of, of understanding, you know, the human beings in the region, the half a billion human beings who, who you know, who deserve better. Um, I also worry about speaking about the region, uh, you know, because it's a, like, like I mentioned, it's a large region and it's many countries and it's a lot of people. It's a lot, lots of different ethnicities, cultures, etc. I keep worrying about... Uh, you know, because wh- whenever you get, you tell a story, you tell a big story, you're also missing a lot of small stories. You're missing nuances and details and niches. And and uh, I keep worrying about us having made some mistakes uh, in this zooming in and out. And uh, we like that we didn't do justice to certain amenities or certain stories or certain perspectives within the region of certain people within the region who, who would deserve better. That's, that's, I think that's, that, that would be my answer. And uh, I'd like to hear yours, of course. Yeah, I guess there's, there's the worry about having used too broad a brush. And maybe um, people, particularly people within the region, would feel like um, their perspective was unfairly grouped with others which were different. Uh, or their story was un- unfairly included in others which were different. Um, and that is a sensitivity. Um, I guess my biggest concern would be 
whether it's enough, to be honest, whether we told the story well enough, um, whether, you know, we went deep enough into it, whether we, whether I gave enough voice to previous generations, um, whether the book carries the aspirations that we wanted it to carry. And I know the answer, of course, and the answer is it, it'll never be enough. Um, and that's why yeah. we didn't, you know, call it a day upon finishing the book. We're still working. Yeah. And um, I mean, it's, it's, it's worth, uh, uh, you know, as an ending note here, it's worth talking about what comes next. Uh, my perspective, of course, is that, yeah, we're going to work more on promoting the book. We have not done that enough uh, for multiple reasons. One of them is that the it, the UK release and the American release were basically six months apart, and that kind of confused the, the promotion schedule a bit. But also COVID makes everything uh, complicated. You know, in, in, a, in another world, we would be able to do a book tour and we'll be able to like book, do book signings and stuff and uh, kind of waiting you know, every time we say, okay, this pandemic is going to be over now, and this is the last wave, and then we get we, we get slammed with another wave. Um, but you know, luckily, a lot of the book is is uh, is it's kind of evergreen material, especially the historical part. And I think it will always be it will you know working on promoting it, even if it's been you know nearly six months now since the American release. Uh, I think it's still worth it. So I think I would like just to, to continue to working to to be working on that. I also noticed that in my own notes, sometimes I take notes and I tag them as Middle East Crisis Factory as though I am writing an update to the book. Even though I've, it's not, I don't think I'm going to write an update to the book. Uh, I think maybe, but I, I think maybe is there's space for us to do some kind of follow-ups as a podcast, uh, you know, as maybe as, uh, you know, as a newsletter or something like that. It's worth, it's worth looking into. But I think the biggest the biggest thing that I would be looking forward to is releasing the original Vicious Triangle, the original, you know, the, you know, you, you mostly worked on it. That, that's mostly your work. Um, basically releasing that as kind of a limited release podcast. Yeah. And uh, the original notes for that have so much that was cut, um, not just in terms of stories, but also in terms of references. Like we went really deep. Uh, we had never done this before, so we didn't know how the process worked. So, you know, we were documenting every single event that had occurred, in some cases, as it occurred, because we were writing about things that were still unfolding. Um, like one example of that is the story, um, the case study on tyranny and terrorism. We used uh, Bashar al-Assad and ISIS. Um, and I was writing about basically the evidence of collaboration between the two. And pretty much until we sent the book off, I was still gathering evidence of, you know, the really flagrant evidence that both had deliberately aided and abetted each other and that it, it's quite an archive um most most of the sources didn't make it in but it's quite an archive yeah i think i still have a, a google document somewhere with like with full of of material full of of links and you know just evidence in the end you're like i can't include all of that evidence i have to tell a story yeah. in the end yeah uh i i look forward to the next chapter i guess um, it was it was uh, it was not an easy book to write, and the process was absolutely nuts. Uh, I hope that our future collaborations are not going to be as chaotic, and they're not going to happen under such severe personal circumstances. Um, but I think we did a good job, uh, and I hope I hope that uh, you know I hope that the uh, whatever comes next is also going to live up to the, the expectations. 
Thanks for listening to the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast. Episodes are currently releasing every other Friday, so if you're listening to this on release, catch you in another two weeks. If you're looking for something sooner than that, then check out our new podcast, Intergalactic Tarbush. It's a weekly short-form podcast where we talk about random things from social change in the public sphere to why Iyad hates koalas so much. You can support us by leaving us a review on whichever app you listen to your podcasts on or giving us a like on YouTube. You can also support us on Patreon, where our audience support plays a massive role in making sure our team at Kawekibi Foundation can keep doing what we do. Catch you next time. كتابا من كل قلب تالف